Hello, this is Julie Schwartfrager, the Balance and Falls Special Interest Group Chair. Today I'll be talking with Malike Kaya, who's a graduate student at University of Kansas, completing her dissertation. Her research uses pupillometry in the assessment of balance and posture in healthy adults and people with Parkinson's. Some of the things we'll talk about today, Malike, include some of your, your mentors and influences for your current research, some highlights of your current work, related to balance and fall prevention in populations with neurologic impairments, and then those next steps for the future. Uh, mm -hmm. Things like where you wanna be after you finish your dissertation in spring, and some of your research uh, uh, directions that you see moving into based on the research you've already done and will be presenting, I understand, again at mm -hmm. CSM 2020. Yeah. So take, take it away, tell us a little bit about uh, your background. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction. Um, so my name is Malika, as you introduced. Um, I am a PhD candidate at the University of Kansas Medical Center. So before I joined there, just go back to the uh, 10 years ago, I was a bachelor's student at Istanbul University at Turkey in physical therapy. Um, and then once I completed my degree, I worked as a physical therapist for two years. Uh, in Istanbul, uh, which uh, I work in a hospital, uh, which was um, specifically uh, specifically looking for the neurological conditions and the orthopedic conditions. And then af after that job, I also worked in the uh, pediatric rehabilitation center. So again, it was all kids with neurological conditions. And then after that, I decided to pursue a, a higher education and then uh, I came to United States. Uh, I did my master's in the University of Pittsburgh uh, in the, under the specialization of neuromuscular physical therapy. Um, during my education, I joined the lab of Jessie Wanswaringen. Uh, she is um, she is a well-known mentor, and she has a really great work on geriatrics and neurological conditions. Um, so while I was in Pittsburgh, I joined two uh, research projects. One of it was looking the um, aerobic exercise versus motor learning exercise on dual tasking outcomes, uh, on dual tasking gait outcomes in older adults. And the second project was about looking the effect of motor imagery on gait in people with Parkinson's disease. So um, these two research projects really sparked my interest in neuro rehab. And um, so I decided to pursue a PhD degree. Um, so I just want to uh, highlight the, mentor, uh, the importance of mentors. So Jessie was a really excellent mentor. So she really guided me during my applications and also like uh, she, she helped me a lot to understand how the research work, uh, how the research goes, and then uh, also uh, tell me to be patient because you know, as a, a junior grad student, you just feel like, oh, okay, when am I gonna have the results? When am I gonna, you know, write something? But having uh, that great mentorship was really essential for me to understand the process of research. Um, and then after that, I uh, got an acceptance from the University of Kansas Medical Center. So uh, and. I joined the lab of a laboratory for advanced rehabilitation research in simulation. And my mentor is right now, Hannes, his name is Hannes DeVos. 
Uh, he is a physical therapist by education. Uh, he did his PhD in KU Leuven in Belgium. And then uh, he, he did his postdoc in University of Iowa and then became a faculty member eventually at the University of Kansas Medical Center. So right now my research focuses on to understand the pupillary response, which is an indicator of cognitive effort uh, in people with Parkinson's disease while they are doing dual tasking balance activities. Um, and then the importance of this research is so we, as a clinician, we are really, um, we are looking toward mostly about the behavioral outcomes, such as the posture sway, the center of pressure displacement, like when we are considering the balance, but we really don't think about what's going on on the, on the brain side, like um, what's, uh, what's the brain response to it, and then how much effort they're spending to do the uh, balance tasks. So, um, and then pupillometry could be a cost-effective, non-intrusive, and easily apl applicable tool to understand uh, the cognitive effort while people are doing these balance activities. And then, uh, so we, we just first want to see whether this can be a tool we can use, and then whether this tool can discriminate between people with Parkinson's disease and healthy older adults uh, based on uh, like how much mental effort, cognitive effort they are spending. That's, so. that's a lot of great information. And so before you go too much more into your research, um, I'll just I'll just let you know that when I saw your poster, mm -hmm. which by the way, um, for our listeners, won uh, our poster award in the Balance and Falls SIG in 2018 at CSM. Um, and that was a poster called, Does Task-Evoked Pupillary Response reflect change in postural control. And that was a proof of concept study at that point, also at University of Kansas. Mm -hmm. I was really taken with the fact that I had never seen personally, um, and I, I do read a lot of the literature, I, certainly not everything, mm -hmm. um, a, a PT-focused study using pupillometry, mm -hmm. which led to a, a really wonderful conversation with the uh, Balance and Falls SIG leadership as we were at your poster. Um, mm -hmm while we were doing the judging and just talking about where does this come from? And I think you explained that in the mm -hmm. psychology research, this is not an unusual tool. And in fact, the lab that you're at um, has a psychology department that already had that equipment. So can you talk a little bit about pupillometry? What, what, what does that lab setup look like? And mm -hmm. um, uh, kind of talk about a little bit of the mechanics of it. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you're right. It's not a new tool because uh, it has been used in psychophysiology field for more than 40 years. Um, and like, like one of the seminal paper was published around 1960s. So they found that um, with increased mental effort, people shows in, uh, there's a linear relationship between increased pupil dilation. Um, so, of course, this was looking the raw pupil dilation, and we know that uh, pupils can affect from effect of lightening, uh, accommodation, stress. Um, so we, so now the current tools enable us to filter out those outcomes, and like some of the, there are some algorithms that we are using to filter out those confounding factors, and then we are able to see. Uh, how much pupils dilate due to increased cognitive effort. So yeah, this, um, but 
yeah, the uniqueness of our study is that we try to implement this uh, tool in the rehabilitation research. Uh, so as you mentioned, it's a well-known tool in the psychology field, but yeah, our, our lab tried try to implement this in people with medical conditions and especially for the understand the rehabilitation outcome. And, and do, I, do I remember this correctly? If I went to your lab where you're doing mm -hmm. your research, um, outside of the room where the subject or the participant will be asked to do a, the dual tasking or the difficult postural balance activity, um, I would go around a wall, right, or outside where, where I can't be seen, and there's a really big, like, video screen of the eye. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, not a really big, but yeah, as a big as a smartphone. Um, so we can see like how much the dilation is, uh, like as a real time indicator. You're right. Uh, and then, yeah, just to also under um, to give some understanding about the uh, easiness, the applicability of the tool. It's just uh, like a regular glass. It's a light as a regular um, corrective glasses. And then we ask people to remove their glasses and then put a corrective lenses based on their prescription. So it just acts like a regular corrective glasses. Uh, and then there is a one smartphone unit we just put on the pocket of the patient or we can hold it if we need it, if we need to. So it's just that, um, that easily applicable for uh, patients uh, and non-intrusive as I mentioned. Very nice. Mm -hmm. And so can you do this outside of the, the lab space itself? Can you go to different environments? Yes, uh, so there are some wireless options. Uh, which one, one of it, we, we have one in our lab. Uh, so yeah, uh, there are certainly, we can do that in the outside. Uh, and then we also have some illuminated um, corrective lenses so it can also uh, control the effect of the sunshine. So certainly we can do that outside of the lab. Oh, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now back to your wonderful research. As I said, um, Malika, you won our 2018 poster contest mm -hmm. uh, for your work. And then I bumped into you at ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine, mm -hmm. where you had a blue ribbon by your poster, which I was looking at saying, I think I remember her. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough to bump into you, which led to this podcast, which is just one of those fortuitous happenings. Um, but I also was struck by the fact that there you go, advancing this research and winning another poster award by a completely separate group. I had nothing to do with that one. Um, mm -hmm. And you'll be presenting at CSM. So talk a little bit about that progression of your proof of concept in 2018 that mm -hmm. you presented and won four in 20 uh, at CSM. And then what you presented at ACRM, and if as much as is appropriate, a little bit about what your poster will be about at CSM 2020 that I understand you'll be presenting at. Yes, perfect. Thank you for the question. So yeah, in 2018, it was a proof of concept study. We just wanted to understand whether epilometry is a sensitive device to um, to reflect the change of the postural the change of the postural control. So uh, what we did, uh, we recruited healthy young adults and then asked them to do uh, like single task balance and then the dual task balance, which is a component of balance plus cognitive testing. And then we measured their pupil dilation, their pupillary response. So we found that with increased uh, postural demand or increased uh, 
the condition difficulty, people showed increased pupillary response. So it was a proof of concept study. And then uh, we, we further go along and then we wanted to uh, validate uh, to see the reliability and the validity of this device uh, in people with Parkinson's disease. So um, we first look at the test retest reliability uh, and then we also val validated it against electroencephalogram because it's a well-known device to reflect the changes of uh, cognitive effort due to changes of postural demand. Um, so these were the second steps, uh, which I presented at the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine uh, conference. And then uh, at CSN 2020, I'm going to present uh, the effect of uh, dual tasking on people with Parkinson's disease measured through pupillary response. So just uh, it may be um, some hint for the results would be, uh, so we, we found that people with Parkinson's disease has uh, increased pupillary response compared to the healthy controls from increased task difficulty. And then also as a subgroup analysis, we look at uh, whether there is a difference between people who are fallers, people with Parkinson's disease who are fallers who reported falls within the past six months versus who are not fallers, people who did not report any falls within the past six months. And we look at the difference of that. So interestingly, we found that people with, with, people with Parkinson's disease who are non-fallers had increased pupillary response compared to the people with Parkinson's disease who are fallers. So we interpreted this results as maybe non-fallers need to exert higher cognitive effort to maintain their balance in challenging situations. And as well as maybe the other side could be people with Parkinson's disease who are fallers have limited cognitive effort, so they don't, can, they cannot go beyond their trash, uh, their limits of cognitive capacity. So. And can you talk a little bit about your, uh, your, your participant sample? Uh, how did you get, or what, what does your demographic of your Parkinson's sample look like? Um, so they are all in mild to moderate disease stage. Uh, of course, they are all uh, older than 60 years old. Uh, and then they were all matched, uh, the healthy controls were all matched through age, uh, gender, age, sex, uh, education, and yeah, and then the cognitive status. Very nice. Now, um, I'm thinking about, as I'm listening to you say this, because I, I get really excited about people thinking about the cognitive demand uh, and what's going on, uh, you know, kind of that automatic associative and kind of motor learning stuff, which goes mm -hmm. back to the beginning of your, your research career and mm -hmm. your PhD or your, your master's. So with that, can you talk a little bit about uh, the, those concepts for students that might be in the balance and falsely listening to this podcast? Um, yeah, um, so definitely this opened up a new uh, window for us to, because uh, interestingly in our results, we also look at the behavioral outcomes such as their postural sway, their center of pressure displacement. However, uh, they were, we did not see any differences uh, in like when we increase the uh, the difficulty of the task, like we when we ask the people when we challenge their people balance, uh, we did not see a differences, but we see a differences on their cognitive effort. So there might be something else, something going on in their brain, but they are compensating um, 
on their uh, you know behavioral outcomes. So uh, that's really interesting uh, topic for us because as a physical therapist, uh, we usually assess the balance through you know perturbation tests or some <coughs> novel clinical tools. But maybe um, looking the cognitive effort through some of these neurophysiological tools, including pupillometry, might give us a better understanding what's going on in these people. Very nice. And so if you were to take a healthy adult, mm -hmm. um, like say a, a, a PT student, right? They tend to be very athletic and, and, and very movement centered. Um, what, would their, what would you expect to see on their EEG and their pupillometry to do uh, the same balance test? So the, the um, single balance and then balance with dual tasking. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, right now, the research, um, we don't really have those cutoff values, whether um, if people like have a um, pupillary response about this score me, like, means that they are exerting higher cognitive effort. So we cannot really tell that right now. We don't have those norms, but we just have comparisons. And we know that with uh, increased postural difficulty, postural demand, people will show uh, exert higher pupillary response so we just know that right now but maybe the future research could be to establish some norms and then uh, making this as a clinical decision making tool uh, to understand whether these people has any balance difficulty are they really exerting higher cognitive effort to maintain their balance so whether these people are at risk for falls because they're they need to spend much more effort so those are some future questions i am uh, interested to answer. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay. Um, that helps me understand a little bit more. Um, and I guess it does. It also brings up the question of, will you uh, plan to uh, do more data collection where you can work on establishing normative values? Um, so, uh, of course, it depends on my postdoctoral mentor. Uh, of course, I'm interested about the neurophysiology of the brain, like while people are doing dual tasking, balance or gait activities. So, but pupillometry is not the only uh, neurophysiological tool. So there are some other tools such as functional near infrared spectroscopy or electroencephalogram, which enable us to give a real time uh, data and understanding of what the, those people are doing. So yeah, of course, um, I'm interested to pursue in this area of the research. Um, so going back to being a PT in Turkey um, about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of PTs that will be listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'd love to hear your, mm -hmm. your journey. What makes a PT working in both adult and pediatric neuropopulations? And then you said, well, I, I, did you have a question that led to wanting to pursue your master's and, and on from mm -hmm. there? What, what made you take that leap? Yeah, of course. Um, um, so just going back, I was born in New York and then I was there until five years old and then my parents went back to Turkey. So uh, I, I always held my mind to uh, come back to the United States and then pursue my education. And then, of course, the research intensive institutions and then the opportunities for research led me to uh, take that decision and uh, come to the United States back. Um, and then, but of course, uh, I would say the uh, it was a, I studied a bachelor's um, bachelor's in physical therapy, 
And recently, I so just want to say that recently I got my PT license, US PT license. Um, Congratulations. So, yeah, thank you. So I had to refresh my mind. And then also, I, I would say I learned some new things, which I didn't learn in my bachelor's degree. So uh, compared to the education, um, and then some of the clinical approaches are uh, kind of advanced in the United States. That's why I decided to come here and pursue my education. Very exciting. Although not back to New York. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Really Kansas so far. Yes. Okay. Um, so uh, that's really nice to hear that that journey um, and to find out that you started out in New York and then we're in Turkey and then now you're back. Yeah. Um, are you looking at postdoctoral programs in, in and out of the country or are you staying in the U.S. as you look at those? Yes, we. Uh, I have a family here, uh, so we are planning to stay in the U.S. Um, we are uh, open to move anywhere inside the U.S. Very nice. Mm -hmm. um, so the other thing I was just going to ask about, and you've touched on this a little already, is the future focus. Now we're talking about your postdoctoral uh, that you're already planning out and doing your applications for that next leg of your journey. Um, but where, uh, where do you see yourself in five years, right? So after your postdoc, uh, where do you want to be? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I want to be in a research-intensive academic institution and having a tenure-track job, uh, hopefully, uh, to pursue my research um, in this area. So, yeah, what, and also uh, I would love to also teach um, in a physical therapy department. Um, so just want to balance the research and meet my teaching activities, and hopefully in my new job. Very nice. Maybe using pupillometry, maybe some other tools based yeah. on your postdoc. I got gotcha. you. Mm -hmm. On the common data elements, I wonder if in your lab or in your uh, dissertation research or with your mentors, you've talked about common data elements and, mm -hmm. and talk a little bit about that. Um, you mean, uh, would you clarify the common data elements? Yeah. Yes. So there's a, a there's a movement throughout um, NIH and uh, mm -hmm. research in, in this country to use a common set of data elements. So that would include having tools based on either the level of care, because I understand there's some work going on in the rehabilitation level of care right mm -hmm. now to put together a set of common data elements. But for instance, in brain injury or in Parkinson's, mm -hmm. uh, what are the measures that mm -hmm. if you're doing research are recommended that you use those, especially if you're going to publish a paper. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially what it is, is creating a common language across mm -hmm. research and clinical uh, to have published in our, mm -hmm. our journals and, and have that dialogue in order to move the dialogue forward and have better mm -hmm. understanding across studies. Um, mm -hmm. It kind of ties in with the possibilities of data sharing and mm -hmm. big data as well, of course. Yes, yes. Yeah, I understand. Um, so for, of course, for measuring the cognition or balance or the disease severity or motor impairments of the Parkinson's disease, there are established um, clinical measures or tools, I would say. Um, but right now with the pupillometry, uh, we might not be there yet. So uh, of, uh, as I mentioned, so we need to establish some normative data uh, compare it with the, you know, healthy young people or healthy old people. And then P 
people with uh, disease conditions. So right now with the neurophysiological tools, I think there, there has to be much more effort to establish those norms and then have some common language, language between uh, researchers to better understand what's going on. Very good. Now you're doing uh, balance testing. Mm -hmm. um, are there any things that, uh, that are coming into view that you say, well, like how do you choose what measures you're mm -hmm. using in your research that you've mm -hmm. done so far? Yeah, um, so we look at the time up and go test, the pool test. So we decide uh, we use these tools because uh, in movement disorders clinic, the most common tool and the, mo the most time effective tool is pool test, just pulling the patient from backward and then um, understand and then measuring their uh, their postural response. So, and then the time up and go is what I see in the PT clinics. It's most commonly used uh, to understand the balance and false risk. Um, so we look at these two tools um, and then also collect their uh, history of false data uh, to understand their false risk. So yeah, these were the, uh, these were the tools that we use uh, to understand their postural impairments. Very nice. And I think those are tools uh, that in PT school, those are ones that students even get proficient with, which is mm -hmm. very nice, right? So mm -hmm. they're very well accepted and everyone would understand. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you for reviewing those highlights. Um, any, any other thoughts about where using pupillometry and thinking about cognitive demand for dual tasking and posture, uh, both in healthy uh, adult population and in Parkinson, people with Parkinson's, where do you see that this might lead to as far as clinical mm -hmm. measures? Do you, do you think this could be something that would become a standard where people wear their, their glasses or something lightweight and do their, their exercises and it adds to center of pressure uh, or other measures going mm -hmm. on in research and in the clinic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see uh, two different uh, ways to use this tool. The first one would be like to maybe um, to, under as a, uh, uh, to understand whether this people has a posture impairment or whether this people at risk for falls. So it might lead uh, to some extra efforts to uh, you know, improve their balance and then decrease their false risk. So, uh, so uh, through understanding how much cognitive effort they are spending. So this might be the first road. And then the second road could be the effectiveness of the interventions that we might measure through pupillometry. So um, <laughs> this, this is not uh, my research topic, but of course I did some literature review. So we might use as a, to understand their motor adaptation um, uh, through the pupil pupillometry. Like uh, we can first see like what they're doing before the intervention, such as exercise. And then we can see, uh, we might again do it post exercise and then see, uh, to understand whether there is a decrease uh, or adaptation uh, on their pupillar response to understand the effectiveness on the, of the intervention. So that could be also help us to, uh, to decide the, you know, what should be the frequency, what should be the duration, um, yeah, what should be the intensity of the uh, intervention that we are performing for these people. Very nice. And then I know it's still at the research level, but um, as you pointed out, it's research that in um, 
the psychology research labs has been going on since the 60s, which is kind of cool mm -hmm. to think about. Um, what would be the, thinking about clinical utility, what would be the cost and the amount of equipment that, uh, you know, as this moves forward, if it is adopted, mm -hmm. is this expensive, is this pretty low uh, equipment time uh, and training, or is would this mm -hmm. be something that special training and a lot of expensive equipment would be needed? What, what do you think? Um, yeah, so my mentor always says that this is uh, this is the poorest neurophysiological tool because uh, it's compared to the other neurophysiological tools, including functional functional near infrared spectroscopy or electroencephalogram. And um, this is um, much more uh, cheaper compared to them, and also uh, the application of it. Uh, you know, the time to prepare the tool, time to prepare the subject or uh, the patient. Uh, it's less um, less than the compared to the other neurophysiological tools. However, still the data analysis might be a little bit labor intensive. Um, I mean, I, I I know there are some software companies to trying to make it in uh, more user friendly or more understandable, like what does that data means uh, to help the researchers or the clinicians uh, better. But still, uh, I would say it's the uh, main caveat that uh, the data analysis and the data interpretation could be, uh, right now, m might prevent to use in the clinical settings. I'm really looking forward to seeing your poster at CSM 2020. Thank you so much for organizing this. It was really fun to talk with you. <laughs>